morning, Philippi. Good morning, church family. It is so cool to see families and little ones and toys and things all over the room. It is, warms my heart. I'm, uh, I'm Ryan, Pastor Ryan. Uh, I'll be preaching the word today. But first, we don't have any announcements today. But there's got to be some sort of an announcement we can make. Like, can you guys think of something? Something good to announce. How about Christ is risen? We don't only say that on Easter, right? Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And he's returning. That's good news. We need to hear it all the time. So uh, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're not going to do an expositional today on 1 Timothy, but it is kind of our anchor text. So we will be jumping to it when the time comes. So we're, we're doing a series, a three-week series on spiritual practices. If you Google spiritual practices, you're going to see things like, you know, prayer and meditation and, uh, yeah, you know, things like that. For us as a Christian, uh, there are things that we do. We, we have times of prayer. We have, uh, you know, we, we tithe. We go to church. We... Um, you know, we read our Bibles, we fast, you know, those are the kinds of things that as Christians, we do. <clears throat> and what we want to do is we want to consider spiritual practices, what is the need of them, like why is it vital that we have spiritual practices as Christians. Last week, we covered the first, uh, the first Sam gave you the first tool, which was the, the tool of resetting. And, and that when you, the, the value of stopping, turning it off and turning it back on again, looking up and seeing the holiness of God as he is, looking down and seeing yourself for who you are, and that is not God and in need of a savior, looking back up again at the cross and considering what he's done for you and then proceeding with caution. Now, I, I think maybe this could fit into the proceeding with caution because what we want to do is we want to take the idea of spiritual practices more on a daily, not necessarily in the times when you come here, but the times when you're at home, the times when you are in your, doing your daily thing. Um, before we get too far into this, I definitely want to go before the Lord in prayer about this topic. This is going to dig deep, hopefully. I've been praying that this would dig deep into what your life looks like and why does it look that way and how the Holy Spirit wants to examine and help you examine what your life looks like in light of the holiness of God. So let's go before him in prayer, in humility. Father, I may not have eloquent words, but If your spirit is in it, mighty things will happen this morning as we gather. We may not do everything right. We may not feel 
like things are going perfectly or smoothly. But if your spirit is in it, if your spirit is working within us, we know that um, your purposes will be accomplished. So we ask that you would take this time. We present ourselves before you and ask that, Lord, you would make us humble, make us honest, and that we would hear from you. You would speak to us. You would give us the, the bravery and the honesty to, to examine our life in light of who you are. And God, you would help this, the word, your word, to go past the walls of this room. And that would we be able to take these tools into our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in spiritual practices... We have, we're saying practice makes perfect. What we're not saying is that perfection is attainable for you. We're saying that perfection is done. You are perfected in Christ. For the work of the cross that has been done, what Jesus has accomplished, through faith, you stand before the throne with the righteousness of Christ. That is who you are. Now, Spiritual practices is walking in and growing up into that reality. It's growing up into that reality. <clears throat> so positionally, you are, you are perfect in Christ. Now we grow up into it. So today we're going to cover the practice of worship. The practice of worship. Now a lot of times we think of, when we think of the word worship, we think of music. Music is a form of worship. It's a form of praise. So praise is a form of worship. And in the realm of praise, in, in the category of praise, is singing. But what about all the other forms of worship? What about all the other forms of worship? Think about the, the children of Israel. How detailed God was about worship for them. You know, think about the temple and the sacrifices and the offerings and all the strict rules and regulations on how things had to be done. There was no question for the children of Israel what worship looked like for them. They knew exactly what to do, where to go, when, and how many times to do something. This is how we worship. But what about us? How do we worship? What does worship look like for us? Now that all those things are gone, we don't have a temple to go to, right? We don't have a book in here that's like worship practices for the Christian. Here's how many times you pray. Here's how many times you, you go to this place and, and you face this direction. And, you know, we don't have any of that. So what does it look like for us to worship? What do those worship practices look like for the Christian today? Even pagans have worship practices. They have things that they do um, that are places that they go that they consider are acts of worship to their gods. There's a Bible word that we may not think so much about. Um, maybe you haven't thought too much about it in the past. But it's this word godliness. And this, I believe, is the answer to the question, how do we worship if you look at the Greek word that is used the most common in the Bible for godliness, it's a Greek word, 
Eusebia. Eusebia. It's used 15 times in the New Testament. There are a couple other times where the word godliness is translated from another Greek word, um, but this is the most common. And I kind of geek out a little bit on this. This is it's fun. So if you look at the, this word, eusebia, it's, got, it's a compound word oftentimes the Greek is, right? So you have the eu and the sebeia, and you have those combined. Eu is a prefix that is also tacked onto the beginning of the word gospel. In the Greek, the word gospel is um, euangelion. So angelion is kind of like angel, right? The messenger or a message. And you tack on you in front of that, it's the good message. You means good. So good message or good news or gospel. In this case, it's you sebeia. Good and sebeia means worship or reverence. So that's not what I would normally think about when I read the scriptures and I come across the word godly or godliness. Usually I would think, well, it's synonymous with, you know, righteousness or holiness. And you think righteousness, holiness, godliness, that's pretty much the same thing, right? Righteousness is doing right. Holiness is being separate. And godliness is good reverence or right worship or a disposition of reverence before God. This word is actually... Uh, pretty well known during the time. It's one of the reasons why you'll see this word a little bit later in the epistles, because what happened was that the gospel was going out to Gentile lands. And this word is a Greek word. The, the language of the time was Greek. So what they did was they used a word that was already in existence. And they were like, okay, eusebia is something that was understood by pagans. They also understood this concept of godliness. To the, to even to pagans, it was like the things that you did that showed reverence for the gods. And so Paul, oftentimes in his letters, he uses this word as something that they already understood as things that we do that show that we have a posture before God that is a posture, posture of worship and a posture of reverence. A word I like to use to exchange the word godly is God word. God word. Uh, John Piper uses it in in one of his his devotionals, a God word life. When you think of God word, you think of that everything that you do and everywhere that you turn, you have like the face of God before you. So you, you turn towards work, you've got the face of God before you. You turn towards play, you've got the face of God before you. You turn towards family, you turn towards everything, that, everywhere that you go, it's God word. It's a posture of worship to God. So what I want to do now, <clears throat> you know, when we sing, it's so great. What we get to do is we get to just dwell on the awesomeness of God and just like boil over and like overflow with just like enjoying who God is. There's some really cool, uh, what are called doxologies in the Bible. And so let's, let's just take ourselves to the place right now where we are going to set a posture of our heart of worship 
and just reading lists. And let's just set the tone for this, okay? Let me, let me read to you some of the doxologies in the Word. And you can just, um, just listen. You don't need to go there. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You know, while we're singing, we often stand, we often maybe bow, we throw up our hands. Um, this is no different. This is, this is the, the writer of the scriptures worshiping. He's breaking out in praise. So catch this. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Ephesians 3 says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. First Timothy 1 says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. First Timothy 6 says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone it has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Revelation 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the one who has saved us and pulled us out of the gutter, this is the one who has been a faithful friend to us when we feel like there's no one else and we're alone. This is the God who has designed the beauty of the stars and the beauty of the eye and the intricacies of the design of the human body. This is the, the God who sent his son to die, to live a perfect life on your behalf to die for you, to rise again on the third day for you, to ascend to the right hand of the Father who intercedes for you. This is the God who deserves all worship. And this is the same God who's going to get you through this trial that you're in today. So this is the posture. Think of this posture that you're in right now. This posture is what we take everywhere we go in godliness. It is to have this mind before you. It is that of, to have this view of God in all that you do, in every realm of your life. He is worthy. And he is worthy than, more than just the externals. Because what we do <clears throat> is we... We tend to go through the motions and we, we do the spiritual practices, but we lose sight of why. Like, why do we do these things? And I want a good refresher this morning of why do we do some of these things? What is the purpose of some of these things? So back to the word godliness. In regard to godliness, 
the Bible says some of these things. It says that we should pursue godliness, that we should train ourselves in godliness, that we should supplement our faith with godliness, that we should live lives of godliness, that we should conduct ourselves in accordance with our profession of godliness, that we, uh, there are doctrines that produce godliness and there are doctrines that don't. Uh, the Timothys deal with a lot of that. Paul is uh, training his, uh, this young pastor, and he's, he's trying to help him understand that there are some teachings, teachings going on here, and the reason why he comes down so hard on some of these false teachers is that it doesn't produce godliness. It doesn't produce an awe and a wonder and a worshipful heart before God. It, it produces other things and strays us from that. It says that some people have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. It says that his divine power has given us everything we need to live a life of godliness. Um, That all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. It says that godliness with contentment is great gain. It also says that in light of the return of Christ, that we should live godly because everything is going to be dissolved when he returns. And last but not least, in 1 Timothy 3.16, you might want to write this one down. This is a pretty important one. It says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What's a mystery? It's not necessarily something that we can't understand now. It's something that's been hidden. So this idea of godliness was a mystery up until Christ. Why? Who are the children of Israel, and what is their, what's their history? God would be like, all right, here's my law. Here's what I require of you. Here are the worship practices I want you to do. And what happened over and over? The children of Israel failed. They failed to be faithful to him. And they fell on their face, and God disciplined them and judged them. And he's like, you guys, here's my standard. Here's who I am, and here's you how to live in accordance to who I am. And they couldn't do it. And in Romans chapter 8, let me read to you real quick what that says. And I think this kind of brings it together. So it it says that, uh, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So it couldn't be done before because God hadn't sent his son manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, believed on in the world. It's through faith and the spirit, and a new heart that this is accomplished. Godliness and, and producing 
a, a heart of worship that shows itself in its actions could not really fully be realized until Christ had come. Out of all those things I just named about godliness, I just want to focus on one for the rest of our time. Just one of those. And that is training. The training in godliness. So dig into all the rest of those things about godliness. It's really good stuff. Just do, do, a, do a search on godliness and, and do your own study. But training in godliness. So let, here's where we go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7, and 8. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. As I said, uh, Paul is, he has Timothy, he sent him to this place. He wants him to um, take these people and he wants to, he wants Timothy to shepherd them. And, and how he does that is he deals with some of the things that's going on, some of the teaching that's happening there. And when we read in verse 7, read with me here in verse 7, it says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he's comparing. He's like, all right, there's some irreverent, silly myths that are, that are circulating uh, within the, the, this church. People are talking about stuff that is just silly and, and it's irreverent. They're talking about stuff they don't understand, stuff that doesn't have anything to back it up, and they're getting caught up in it, and it's not producing a heart of worship. He says, instead, here's what I want you to do. Instead of getting caught up in that, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to treat your godliness like something to train for. That's an interesting thing to say because he compares it with bodily training. And even then, they had things similar to what we see like the Olympics today. They understood the concept of training for, uh, for something, you know, either a, a performance or training for, uh, a, to compete. That concept was pretty, pretty simple to understand. We get that. Um, when I was... Uh, younger, I played a lot of sports. I totally get this idea of training. It's you practice and you practice and you practice and you put yourself through these really stringent, you know, really strict uh, routines because you have a goal in front of you that you need to be ready for game time. So I want to take this idea of training and ask the question, so why? Like, why, why does, a, does Paul uh, put this importance on training ourselves for godliness? So, the first reason is that we have a goal. Nobody trains unless they first have a goal. And for us, as a Christian, what is our goal? Well, our goal is to remain a worshiper. That's our goal. We want to stay in that mindset. In everything that we do, we don't want to be derailed. We don't want to be sidetracked. We don't want to fall off track or get distracted. We want to stay in this posture of reverence and worship before our God. 
So in two, two I, I would say our goal is broken down in, into two different things. Enjoying God and being formed in the image of Christ. So in, enjoying God, I think, is, is our goal. Um, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it presents, it teaches doctrine through, through um, Q&A. So it asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I love that. It, it like speaks to the purpose of why I exist, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I would say that is our first goal, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's the goal that we set before us as Christians, which would motivate us to train, delighting in him, being happy in him, being satisfied in him. And so we fight to hold that, to hold that posture. And also to be formed into the image of Christ. Like we said, practice makes perfect, right? But the perfection is positionally, it's done. But the process in growing up into that, it looks like a process of being formed into the image of Christ. Paul, in saying to the Galatian church in chapter 4, verse 19, says, My children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So as he's working with this church, what is his main goal and what is he fighting for and striving for and what brings him anguish that is compared to childbirth, something that he wouldn't even understand as a man, but he's just like, all I can think of is something that is intense and, and, and this anguish that I can compare it to is that I want so bad for Christ to be formed in you. So as our goal is to enjoy him and to be formed into his image. So that's the first thing of why we train, because we have a goal. Second reason is that, that keeping that goal takes effort. <clears throat> Nobody reaching a goal, you know, no Olympian reaches that point without effort. Uh, they have, among other things, they have crazy, you know, crazy hard training routines. They don't just get by with just having good genes. They, they start with that, and then they have, uh, they have effort. In uh, Hebrews chapter 6, 11, and 12, it says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So notice what it said, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And how do you get that? Earnestness. Not sluggishness. Earnestness. So he's saying, guys, I want this full assurance of hope until the end for you. But here's how you're going to get it. It's going to be hard work. It's going to take effort. Guys, there's nothing worse than a hopeless situation, than feeling hopeless. Like, like you look to the future and you can't see anything that you look forward to. 
I know how that feels. I'm sure you do too. But God, in his love, inspires Paul to say, here's what I want for you. I want a disposition for you to, to, be, to have this full assurance of hope that drives you. But it's going to take effort. Another reason why we train is because we beware the condition of passivity. So I don't know about you guys, but for me, as I behold the awesome realities of the gospel, the fact that God has saved me, that Christ came and he died for me, that he rose again for me, that he prepared a place for me, That Jesus is the author and finisher of my faith, of our faith. That he will finish a work that he started. Now, all of these things should cause us to burst at the seams with praise. But it should never cause us to be passive. And this is where I've fallen, a ditch that I've fallen into so many times. I thought, okay, well, awesome. Salvation is a work of God. Amen. But what about sanctification? So it's never to make us passive, but it's to make us participatory. Participatory. That's that's like the key word that I think of that helps me. Not to uh, step out, but to jump in. Also, I think one of our knee-jerk reactions in Western Christianity, when we hear of things like godliness, is to cry legalism. You're telling me to be godly or you're talking about godliness. It makes me feel uncomfortable because I think you're like trying to, you know, control my life. You're going to tell me to change or something. And I don't know. That just feels like legalism to me. I don't know about you guys, but that's something that I work through. When someone's like, hey, you know, you might want to reconsider how, you know, your life. I remember the first time I had a a brother of mine, uh, well, he... I wasn't a Christian yet, but I remember I had moved away for a while, and I, I came back, and he had become a Christian, and he was looking at my life, and he was examining it, and he, was, he remembered that I had professed to be a Christian when I was younger, and he's kind of looking at me, and he's going, so you're smoking, you're drinking, you're partying, you're doing these other things. He's like, and you profess to be a Christian? He's like this, and he was a brand new believer. He was just like, something's not computing here. And, and I remember how I felt. I was so offended. I was so upset at him just looking and examining my life. And I just went, dude, get out of my life, bro. You, you have no business in my life. This was my best friend. And I said, I don't care if you just like, I don't ever see you again. This makes me feel like crud. And what did God do? Very interesting. I didn't see him again for 18 years. And the seed of the gospel fell deeply into soil as God prepared that, and, uh, and, and I became a Christian. And I longed to see him and tell him that I became a Christian after he was gone. I finally did one day. That's a side story. But how it feels to have the light of holiness shine upon you and you go, I don't like how that makes me feel because that, that, that might make me want to change or that might require change. 
But for us, who have, where do we start? We don't start as Christians. We don't start with whether we're approved or not or whether this thing is going to get us approved before God. We're starting with approval. In Christ, we are righteous before God and we are approved. And, and so this, the same words that the father spoke to his son, um, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When we're in Christ, we have that same pronouncement upon us. You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, and you I am well pleased. So we get to start there. And that puts us in a position of gratitude and of worship and of a desire to want to please him. So that's where we start. So why train? Well, because we have a goal. Because it takes effort. And because we don't want passivity. And what are the main elements of when someone trains? What are the main things that they do? The basic things that they do? Well, I didn't do any studying on this, but I, I don't think it takes a whole lot of uh, rocket science. So four things that I've noticed that, that uh, happens when, when training, when someone's training. Well, first, you have to have, to have a clear vision of the goal. Second, when you take that goal, you're actually rethinking your whole life in accordance with that goal. You're, you're examining everything. Thirdly, after you've examined everything, you start sacrificing things that don't align with the goal. Start shaving things off, cutting things off, getting rid of things that are in the way. And the fourth thing is that you then replace those things that you cut off with things that actually do advance the goal. So I want to take those four things and I want to encourage you to take... The, the goal, the rethinking, the sacrificing, and the replacing. Take the goal, be reminded of what the goal is, rethink everything in your life in accordance with the goal, sacrifice things if you have to, and replace those things that you've sacrificed. So if you can take those four things and apply it to all of your worship practices, your, your spiritual practices... I think that we also could be actively training ourselves in godliness. So I think that one of the first things, so if, if we'll just basically start examining some of our uh, spiritual practices and, and start to work at this together, um, one of the things that we need to acknowledge is that the practice itself is not necessarily godly. So... Our prayers, if we pray, we need to ask the question, is, are my prayers godly? In Bible reading, ask the question, is my Bible reading godly? Is my church gathering, the way that I gather, the way that I view church, is it godly? In my giving, tithing, is that godly? Now, I don't want to make you discouraged, like, oh, geez, everything I do is wrong with the wrong motives. Remember, the goal is a posture of worship towards a God who is worthy. So don't forget that. So one thing that I thought of that might be helpful, you know those doxologies that I read earlier? Maybe this will help you. Pick one of those. Just Google doc the doxologies in the Bible. 
pick one of those, print it out, put it before you, before you do whatever spiritual practice you're, you're about ready to do. So put the, the worship of God before you first. Let that orient you and, and set your posture first before you move into it. Maybe before you write your check. Uh, maybe before you go to work. Maybe before you come to church. Um, because I think it's really easy to lose sight of the goal. So let's work through, through some of these things real quick. Let's look at prayer. What's the goal of prayer? Well, I think one of the things that we can acknowledge what the goal of prayer is not is that we are just merely asking God to keep our life as it is. Yeah. Praise God. Got some rain. I think one of the ditches that I fall into in my requests in my prayer time is that I'm merely asking God to keep my life the way it is. And I, I think we use this word protect as like a spiritualizing, right? So we're like, Lord, protect my bank account. Like protect my safety. Protect my comfort. We don't say it that way, but think about it. Think about what you pray for and why. Is it first a posture of worship or is it a posture of, God, since you're working for me, here's, here are my requests. I want this and that to fall into place. I want this and this to stay the same. Don't mess with this over here. If you could just help me out here, God. <laughs> but what is the goal of worship? Think about this, you guys, our goal of prayer. Joining in with the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. Think about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and their perfect sufficiency and their enjoyment within themselves. We get to step into that as Christians in Christ. We get to step into joining in with their heart and their thoughts and their work and their goals and we get to step into that and find out what is it that you love? What is it that you desire? What is it that you hate? And so starting off with that posture, and Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he started off with our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. That's worship. He started it off there. And so when you remember the goal of prayer, you also then, okay, now I'm going to rethink how I've approached prayer in light of that goal. Now, I can't answer some of these things for you guys, but it, hopefully these are tools that you can use. Take it into prayer. Take these, these tools of examining the goal, rethinking everything surrounding it, sacrificing the things that get in the way, and replacing it. Let's think about giving. What's the goal of giving? Worship. How? Well, by first confessing that everything that we have is God's anyway. 
Everything belongs to him. What is not the goal? Well, the goal is not to think of it as like, I'm giving my 10 so you don't touch the 90. <laughs> so sometimes the, the mindset that I get into. The goal is to show our worship, worship not just by confessing that everything belongs to him, by, but by loving one another, by providing for one another's needs. You know, that the idea of tithing was an Old Testament uh, law that was to, to be used as a concept. But today, we don't necessarily have, that. we don't see that repeated in the New Testament, tithing. Tithe means 10%. What we do see in the New Testament, what we do see in the, in the book of Acts, and when the church was being birthed, what happened? Well, they were all doing whatever it took to care for one another and to provide for one another. They, they were doing things as crazy as selling their houses. So if the, if the goal is, okay, worshiping God by, by acknowledging it's all his, and looking around, and out of the overflow of the love that we've received by our God, we look around and we go, all right, what are the needs around me? That's the goal of giving. So that when we rethink now, okay, we're examining everything now in light of that goal, okay, then we're not going to just examine the 10%, are we? We're going to examine the 100 and go, okay, well, what am I spending my money on? Why do I even make money? And then you begin to think about, okay, well, what can be shaved off? What do we need to sacrifice so that the goal of worshiping and giving can continue? Now, sacrifice can be really hard if you don't have a picture in front of you of like, or, a, or a love for the thing that you're sacrificing for. But if you have... Um, I think, uh, for me, a good example is uh, in, in my marriage with, with my wife. It's like my love for her makes it so much easier to sacrifice for her um, when it's not like an obligation. It's just out of an overflow of just like, you're awesome, and I want to bless you. But it still is a sacrifice, and then replacing, you know, maybe we need, need a new budget in light of the fact that we want to be worshipers. And some of these things, too, you guys, maybe there isn't necessarily something you need to do different. Continue doing what you're doing. Maybe it's just a refresher of what the goal is in those things. I know that is for me. I need to remember what the purpose is. And the last one in church gatherings, what's the purpose of church? What's the purpose of gathering as Christians? Well, as we consider all that God has done to create a people for himself, for his good pleasure, for his glory, he's taking all, all of us who are this eclectic group, we come from different backgrounds and, and different stories, and he has pulled us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he's put us together as adopted children. And he's like, your family, your brothers and your sisters under the Father, 
who has adopted you. And he's given us a chance to reflect the glory of God in the way that we love one another and to show what the love of God looks like. Jesus said, if you love one another, you show that you're my disciples. So the goal, if we remember, in gathering is worship. How? Is by loving one another and remembering the work that God has done in us to make us these redeemed sons and daughters. The goal is Christian fellowship, to build one another up in love under the care of elders, pastors, and fellow brothers and sisters, obviously not just on a Sunday, but in our life as a lifestyle. Then when you remember the goal, you start to think about how we tend to diminish it to just attendance or coming to uh, merely be fed or to hear a sermon. Or sometimes I, I come to church just to feel like a good Christian. But that's not the goal. And so if we were to stick with that goal, we, we would then examine, all right, how are we viewing it? And what are the things that need to be sacrificed? And one of the things that's hardest for me about sacrificing in light of the goal of gathering is Saturday night. Hey, uh, should we watch this movie? Like, it's Saturday night. Maybe if I stood up, I stayed up until 1 o'clock, that wouldn't help me wake up in the morning. And to have that mindset of we come to worship the Lord together. And then replace it. Replace it with things that are actually going to advance the goal. Okay, maybe we can start doing things Saturday night that actually prepare us for Sunday morning as a replacement. And there are other things, you guys, if you, if you take this idea of looking at the goal, rethinking everything else in light of the goal, sacrificing and replacement, you can take those tools and apply it to your relaxation time, your physical and mental rest time, your, your downtime, your uh, entertainment and your amusement. You know, God actually created entertainment and amusement, and he put all kinds of things within his creation that are entertaining and funny. I mean, the fact that we have families here today, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you look at your kids and you got animals. I mean, he's built it into creation for us to be amused and to just be tickled all over the place. So if the goal of entertainment and amusement is worship, how could we train ourselves for godliness in our amusement and entertainment? And then in our career, you know, God created work. So if God created work for us to worship him, then we can take that as the goal and re-examine everything that's related to it, make sacrifices that, so that we stay on that goal, and then replace. So may the Lord and the Holy Spirit use these things in our lives to make us more godly, not to make us feel better about ourselves or to do it out of guilt or shame or to do it out of any other reason that misses the goal. 
but may he work it in us out of an overflow of receiving. We've received perfect love, you guys. And our God is worthy of our lives to look godly. For, for our hearts and our, and our dispositions to be having a posture of reverence and awe and delight. We'll finish up with this benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your perfect love. Your love is strong. We thank you for the chance to gather today and for the reminder that, Lord, you want us to work to be godly, but not to work to to seek your approval, but out of the approval that you've given us, out of the love and out of the grace that we have received. Lord, help us to work hard out of that, out of an overflow, out of an abundance. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would take these tools, you would allow us to put them to use so that you'd receive even more glory and we'd receive the benefits and reaping the benefits of having hearts that are full of hope and joy in knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.